Hi, I'm Ray, a storyteller, educator, mom, and your host of Homeroom, an international podcast bridging the education gap between the classroom and the living room. Growing up, my single immigrant mom was so busy working multiple jobs to make ends meet, she couldn't afford to give me a lot of her time. So she relied on schools to teach me everything about how to succeed in life. But under-resourced and over-standardized, our one-size-fits-all education system had other priorities. In this liminal space of unmet expectations, I fell into a blind spot. Homeroom is my attempt to figure out why. In this first season, I speak with people in all walks of life from around the world about their own experiences with their education systems. I want to know what worked, what didn't, and what ideas they have on improving it for our next generation. In this episode, I speak with Stephen, the Executive Director of Media Justice, a national racial justice organization that advances the media and technology rights of people of color. I wanted to know how his leadership experiences in high school might have influenced this career trajectory and what other moments since influences how he leads today. In the unabridged version of our chat, I told Stephen what my strongest memory of him was when we went to high school together. If you're curious what that is, make sure to follow Homeroomed on Instagram. Without further ado, here is our edited conversation. I left LA after high school. I went to Minnesota um, and really had to come of age there and, and went through some like pretty, pretty challenging times, like moving to a state that was predominantly white, going to a school that was predominantly white, something that I hadn't really, really experienced because, you know, where we went to high school, it was, you know, it's Los Angeles and uh, certainly much more diverse than what I experienced in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm. Um, But so, you know, going through like the trials and tribulations, they're just dealing with like things like um, interpersonal racism in a way that I hadn't really experienced in L.A. L.A. was probably like way more institutional. You're dealing with like racist systems and racist institutions like policing, but the kind of interpersonal stuff where someone's like asking you if you speak Mexican, like that was new to me. Um, So I think for some reason, like those, that time period really, really stuck with me. And I have like deep, you know, memories of it. But high school is a blur, um, Mm. you know? Yeah. So you were, um, you were president of an organization. I was president of an organization and another classmate of ours was uh, president of another organization and they were all around race. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember the year that I was president. um, So in each of our respective organizations, we usually put on this annual like assembly of sorts where we celebrate our culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the year that I was president, we actually didn't do one for Asian culture. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was I approached you and I approached our other classmates and I said, can we do an international assembly of sorts? Mm. And I can't 100% remember like the product that we came up with. Um, but I just remember that there were some successes and there might have been several failures as <laughs> you, would re- you would expect. Of It you was know, high school um, after all. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I just remember um, 
putting that on and um, or like definitely working with you and our other classmate to kind of create this thing together. And I don't remember the discussions that went on. I don't mm. remember any of that. I just remember doing that. Um, mm. And um, and and so like, you know, when I saw that, y- you know, you're like the CEO of a national like racial organization mm-hmm. or racial justice organization. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, that's a major through line. And yeah. so- yeah. Well, I remember. So funny enough, now I'm like contradicting myself. I do remember that <laughs> kind of unity assembly. And I remember that part of the thing that called me to to leadership, to want to actually like be in the leadership body of, of the student group um, was in some ways like my dissatisfaction with how those groups were used you know, uh, in previous years, because I had been a part of, you know, my group for a couple years, by the time I stepped into leadership. And every year, it was like, let me put on a cultural display for you, for you, the school, um, on the stereotypical things you should think about, Mm. you know, Latinx people. And, you know, every year there was some sort of coordinated dance that was either a merengue or a salsa or this thing. Um, and there was some sort of reading of poetry by Octavio Paz or something. Um, just like, I don't, and also very like culturally, very Mexican. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, I grew up Salvadorian. And so mm-hmm. living under the hegemony of Mexicanness and Mexican identity, I was like, there's more to this thing than just this like very stereotypical view I'm giving, like we're, we're projecting mm. and that is a choice. And um, I remember the, I remember the assembly that we put on one year, we completely flipped the script. Um, we did a, uh, my, my president and I, who's actually someone that's still someone I've been in touch with over the years Um we did like a documentary style thing on like murals um, and graffiti art in pri- primarily East Los Angeles. I just went around with like a really shaky Sony camera, like, you know, capturing video and uh, worked with a friend of mine to like edit it. And I'd never edited video before. Um, now the final product is, is probably was more missed and hit, but um but we also attached the soundtrack to it. I remember from this group that was a pretty radical group in Los Angeles called Quetzal. Um, and they had this song called Tierra Olvidada, which was a, a essentially like an anti-colonial anthem. It was about colonialism and the kind of stripping of culture. And we thought like that song with this imagery of like visual expression, um, graffiti and, and murals was a kind of a good pairing. Um, but the language in the song is pretty, you know, had some pretty harsh languages about like European settler colonialism in a way that I think was very politically charged. And, Mm. uh, we got in trouble with some of the, a couple of the Spanish teachers. Mm. Um, but I remember that being completely different. I, I wrote a play, um, all through like calculus that year. I remember, like, I, I remember the teacher, uh, and I don't remember any anything that I learned in that math class, um, but I do remember writing this like this play that was like a, a version of Toy Story, but um, through 
through the experience of like those little toy homies. So it's mm. like toy homies come to life and, you know, um, and comedy ensues. Um, and that was really cool to produce because we actually, you know, our, our high school was one of those like sixth through 12th grade. And so we actually worked with a lot of like sixth and seventh graders to produce it, um, had some political subject matter in there. But yeah, I don't know. It was, I think that it's interesting you bring that up because it actually shakes loose for me something that happened to me in college, which was um, going to a college that was predominantly white. Uh, I was one of maybe like six or seven Latinx students at the school at the time. Like it was very few of us. Um, and the the Latinx group at my school was essentially a glorified Spanish club for white people. Mm. Um, it's like people, white people who were really interested in speaking Spanish got to join that club. And literally like the president and vice president of the student group were white uh, and, and not like white Latino, not like no real connection, just like milk toast white. Um, and like literally like uh, it was a Spanish club. And I and the the director of multicultural studies at my university was like was basically telling me like coming in here's this kid coming from Los Angeles and there were a couple other Latinx students that that were in my class the year that I joined and essentially encouraging us to like foment the coup which we did um, very in, in true Latin America style um, <laughs> you know and. Yeah, you know, and, and the people who were in leadership were nice people. That's not the problem. It was just that this institution that was to, supposed to serve a very different purpose was being repurposed in a way that just no longer really reflected its uh, what it was supposed to do. Um, but I think the experience of being in a school like that uh, really forced me to build kind of common identity across um you know, racial and ethnic lines. Mm. And in my school, uh, in my university, the students of color became a very tight kind of cohesive unit. You know, and we had Hmong students, African-American students, uh, Latinx students. Um, those were, I think, the primary like groups, of uh, the groupings of people that were there. And, you know, we also were dealing with both like interpersonal and very institutional forms of racism. And, um, our unity um, became a vehicle for us to like organize to make some change. So in some ways, I think the stuff that we did in high school of like, I, I would imagine because it I, that's my recollection of why I got into leadership was mm -hmm. like, I'm kind of done just doing carne asadas and showing you <laughs> merengue. And like, that's not Latinx identity. There's something way more political here. And in a place like L.A., um, to not have that be a part of the story is so uh, is such a missing piece, you know, um, is so um, it's not complete. And so I think, you know, and I remember those groupings of folks, I think there was some kind of shared belief in that there's something different that we can represent here that hasn't been represented before. And it carried forward with me, you know, into, into college and, and certainly um, in my career, I've always been kind of steeped through a lens and, and methodology of racial justice. Um, and all of those things, I think, were very informative to that. Oh, my gosh, that was so beautiful. And um, 
I remember in high school, I didn't really have this sort of like opinion of this or that. Those were like the two modes that I had, like, this is good, this is bad. But I didn't really have like the um, metacognition to be like, hey, I know how to fix it. Or, hey, I want to take a stand or resist against this force. Mm. Um, I didn't have the lens to understand oppression. I didn't understand any of that. And so I'm wondering, like, how did you have the wherewithal in high school to, Mm. um, you know, understand this oppression, like, to the extent that you actually felt like you could make a difference and change this? I think in in some part, it's like lived experience, right? Um, Although like lived experience is not always going to be the thing that gives you the language to really describe what's happening. Um, mm. But it is, it is an entry point. Um, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Koreatown um, in a, during a time period um, in the kind of mid to late eighties and going into the nineties where Koreatown is not the like hipster bastion that it is today. It's not, you know, right. the, the culinary scene that you need to travel to. And Anthony Bourdain is doing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, did a couple episodes there and, um, it was a very different place. Uh, and it's a place where, uh, at least in the neighborhood, in the particular area of Koreatown that I grew up in, um, was pretty violent. You know, uh, Seoul International Park, which was a few blocks away from where I grew up, was also like the the birthplace of the MS-13, Marasaba Trucha. Um, and, you know, gang, gang problems were a thing. Um, but so was the reaction by Los Angeles and the Los Angeles police department, which was like over policing. Um, you know, I grew up through the Rodney King beating, um, and seeing the, the images of that, um, very hyper visually and, uh, and remember it really aligning with the things that I would see in the neighborhood and the way that police would harass people and, and beat them and search them and that sort of stuff. Um, so and some of it was just that sort of lived experience. My my family by no means are they like political. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily like marching when Prop 187 was a thing in in California that was gonna uh gonna really criminalize people who supported undocumented immigrants in the state. Um so my family even though we were affected by it because we had undocumented folks in our family, it wasn't necessarily, I didn't have mentors in my family that were like called to, to action in that way. Um, what I think I remember really helping me kind of develop some, some language for this was in high school, uh, there was in that student group, uh, it had an affiliation with the, uh, a student group at UCLA that, had been around for a really long time um, that went by the name of Mecha. Um, it was a highly political um, Chicano organization. Chicano as an identity for Mexican-Americans is already pretty hyper-political and it's rooted in um, a lot of the like uh, the Chicano movement in the 60s and 70s, um, a lot of rooted in some of the history in Los Angeles and organizing in schools, um, you know, I, I remember walkouts being a thing when we were 
in in high school and and in subsequent years you would every now and then you would see like massive droves of student walk, walking out you know to protest whatever it might be even during trump i think i remember my cousin walking out of of her high school along with like you know thousands of other students throughout la um but that's rooted in a history that that happened in california in los angeles um so that student group um mecha they had a a sub program that they did where they worked with high school students across the city of LA. Uh, and it was called the, it was called like the United Youth Baslan. Oh yeah, that's what it was called. Uh, and my Mexican American friends would encourage me to go out to it. And that was a place where I started learning things like colonialism and uh, learning about like you know, racism and, and, and more of the understanding the lens behind it. Um, and they were really big on like consciousness raising and political education. Uh, so that became kind of a, a breeding ground for some like radicalization, I guess I, I would say. Um, I found limitations with it being Central American. I found like the idea of self-identifying as Chicano to be a little bit counter to my own lived experience and didn't mm. really see myself reflected there. So there were, there were limits and to, to like how much I would be comfortable being a part of that group. Um, and then certainly going to, going to college, um, that became another site for me to, to get even more deeply ingrained in understanding like these, these experiences that I've had, what was, what's the language that I can attach to like really describe what happened. Mm. Um, and yeah, the multicultural office at my university um, had a couple really, really cool, really radical uh, individuals who um, I don't think they would self-describe themselves as organizers, but a lot of how they encouraged the students of color at my university to like come together was organizing, was mm -hmm. leadership development. Um, and, and then when I left college, um, my first job out of college was at a tenants union uh, where I started learning the actual methodology of organizing, which, you know, when you really study it and when you really trained by it, you learn some of the concepts that are key to understanding race and just power um, and how it functions in our society. And, um, and that became another place to like really deepen my own kind of political analysis. And since then, in the work that I've come to do here now at Media Justice, my organization, um, you know, I was really, uh, I was mentored by, uh, our founder, Malkia Devich Cyril, uh, you know, and they were someone who emerged from, um, the black power movement in the sixties and seventies. Um, their mom had been, uh, a member of the black Panther party, um, had run the school lunch program in New York, um, had edited, edited their newspaper, um, and, and Malkia was, you know, incredible, was what they call a panther cub. That's like the children of Black Panthers. Uh, so, you know, and they were grounded in like Black power movements, Marxism, and um, got exposure to, you know, those kinds of uh, political lenses um, as well. So it's kind of been a mishmash and a journey, and it kind of goes from like lived experience to mentorship to you know, to people throughout my life who've been able to kind of um, steer me in the right direction, I guess, in, in a direction that that helped me more fully capture like what I was experiencing. That is so rich. Um, that is an amazing experience. And 
you know, um, visually what I see is like, um, so, you know, um, so I have a plant, I have like one plant in our home mm. and, um, I have to rotate it like every, um, every week because it grows towards the light. Right. Yeah. Right, and, right. and there's no, there's no light on this other side. And, um, and what I've realized, um, I mean, I knew this before, but it's by, it's, it's through actually taking care of this plant that I realized that we're always moving towards the light mm -hmm. and we need that light to sustain us. And like, just biologically, that's what we're designed to do. And so like, visually what I'm seeing is that the light for you was being seen, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you were constantly uh, motivated or driven by this desire to be seen for who you really are or what you actually represent or, mm -hmm. um, you know, not, not held by these preconceived stereotypes or notions of who you should be or how you or how, like, um, you know, we've been, like, projected in society before us. And does that metaphor, does that visual, like, analogy sort of fit? What do you it think? It absolutely does. I mean, and I – see, I, we should hang out more often because I feel yes. like you reflect back the things that I say much better than I can. Oh, my um, gosh, no. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think where, where it really resonates for me is uh, – you know, I, I grew up um, a child of, of Salvadorian immigrants who uh, my mom came to the United States in, in 83, um, fleeing. I mean, the, the real story is actually more complicated than simply just like fleeing civil war in El Salvador, which was happening. And that for sure was uh, a condition that was uh, influencing, um, you know, her migration north. Mm. Um, you know, there were things that that happened between her and my father as well that 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 provoked that migration but um you know she was a garment worker for however many like 20 20 years before she became a domestic worker um so she was working in factories making a lot of the luxury clothing that made it to department stores um you know low wage you know uh, uh not making a whole lot in terms of of salary and and, and pay and um and yeah, I mean, I think I saw how hard she worked to um, make more things possible for me and whatever it was that I wanted. You know, when I was in the sixth grade, I became obsessed with wanting to have a computer. Uh, and that's, you know, for anyone today, but also back then for a family that was poor, like that's a huge purchase. And, you know, she made it happen. And so, um, yeah, there's 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 that kind of experience I had with the people in my family and I saw what they did and, and why they did it and, and just really decent people. And then seeing a version of their story represented in media at the time that was, that was completely different. You know, this was California under governor Pete Wilson, who was a staunch anti-immigrant. Um, he was the person that was really behind the move to, to, you know, seed policies like proposition 187 um you know he was the person who wrote the playbook on how to be how to use xenophobia to towards like um to leverage political gain a thing that 
became a really helpful tool of the right over the last like 20, 30 years. Um, and so, you know, and he was the one who innovated like using political ads that showed like immigrants like crossing the border and, and you know, um, warning people of like this this scourge of people that are bringing crime and diseases into this country, you know, language that would be echoed by Donald Trump as he ran for president. Um, so that was like the story that I saw in predominant media. Um, and that story influenced how the government um, and institutions that emanated from government treated immigrants. You know, I saw how uh, nurses and doctors um, that my mom went to go see when she was on Medi-Cal would treat her. I saw how, you know, uh, social caseworkers would deal with her um, when she was on food stamps. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I saw my mom's kind of fear and like going to work because INS raids back then, you know, I, before ICE, we had uh, INS, INS raids were a thing. Um, so there was this thing that this story wasn't just a story. It had real tangible impacts. Right. And, um, and yeah, I think that, so I think it does sum up for me, I think a fascination or a desire to have greater agency to shape that story because it has so many consequences. Um, and, and I think certainly that's that's been my attraction towards always wanting to either create media and, you know, back then. And I do remember in high school, um, I hated writing book reports. And there were a couple of times <laughs> that I did video book reports. I don't know if, I don't know if you were ever in that, in those English classes, but the English teacher that I submitted video book reports to um, gave us a good grade at the time, but I heard that in subsequent years, she would show the videos to be like, don't do this, please. Oh, don't, wow. Don't do this. <laughs> so, um, but I was always kind of a fan of making media, make telling my own story. I produce a podcast now. Um, and certainly in my work at Media Justice, uh, working to really transform um, systems that shape our culture and shape the official story about, you know, the, the society that we live in. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a great metaphor. I've always been kind of drawn to that and drawn to a need to have greater agency, um, you know, over my story and, and seeing that as a, if, if that's true for me and that's true for more and more people, we live in a society in which we can really, um, you know, shape conditions that are much more favorable to us. You know, if you're neurodivergent, you live in a society in which your story is centered in a way in which like the accommodations that you would need to just thrive, whether it's in the workplace or, you know, um, or in the healthcare system, that all those things are considered. And right now they're not because you're not at the center, you know? 100%. But okay, so I don't know if we were in the same English classes, but I remember in one of my English classes, we had to create um, a music. No, it wasn't a music video, but we created a music <laughs> video. Um, it kind of like a book report uh, about King Lear. And um, mm. I had gotten my friend who like um, did a parody of, um, I don't, something as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I can't remember the rapper, but we did uh -huh. a parody off of that rap. And um, Coolio. We, yes, Coolio. Coolio. Mm -hmm. Yes, Coolio. And we like 
we did it to King Lear. And so we rewrote the whole <laughs> song and it was, it was so fun. And yeah. We were a creative bunch, you know, that was a cool, that was a cool class. You know, it's interesting. So one, one, one aside, one side note, one of the book reports I worked on, because I think the King Lear one mix remix with Coolio is is cool. Um, (laughs) That's really, that's really interesting. Uh, I worked on, I was working on a book report on Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka Mm -hmm. and, uh, I decided I worked with a, a group of friends to produce it as a segment on Jerry Springer. Oh um, my gosh. Because, you know, it's a family drama, really, like at the end of the day. Um, and so, and for whatever reason, I got it in my head Jerry Springer, Jerry Seinfeld was big at the time. So, what if we did a mix between the two, like Jerry Spinefeld? Oh my um, gosh. So I played Jerry Spinefeld and was like essentially like leading a talk show where we brought out a cockroach to like, you know, confront his parents over like whatever family drama existed. Uh, I was very proud of that. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, I think I think it hit the notes of what we needed to do. Like we, it hit the brief for like the video book report. But uh, um but anyways, that was that was a fun that was a fun experience. So I do recognize that our school was pretty open to our creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I look and talk about like the conventional school experience for a lot of high school students or just students in general, that's not one hundred percent the case. And I think yeah. even with our with our school, I think it could have still been a little bit more tailored or, um, you know, less standardized for sure. And I'm wondering, like, with what you know now about how you were successful in school and what you enjoyed in school and um, what kind of projects and activities that you really lit up for and looking Mm. back at your experience um, or even just like your hopes for, the next generation, what do you think that schools can do better or what kinds of um, environments or spaces or activities can they create for students to find, you know, like our kinds of storytelling, media related passions a lot early on? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I feel like my experience in the education system was one of like a series of like fortunate accidents in many ways. Um, mm. And I guess like to, to get very pointed at the, at the question, to me, I think the, the ability to kind of shift the calculus away from like, uh, from your experience being highly defined by, you know, being this kind of crapshoot, maybe you'll have a great experience, maybe you won't, um, to something that's more standardized and that really creates equal opportunity. I think that's the thing that I would want to see as, as a shift. Um, for me, I remember uh, I went to an elementary school in, near, in my neighborhood in Koreatown, which was, you know, um, one of those schools that was a consistently underperforming school. Uh, with the exception, like underperforming in the sense of like standardized testing. Um, and 
The only exception to that was a gifted class that existed within the school that outperformed like the the averages for the entire district. Um, and I I do recognize that I think like education or going to school was a thing that really excited me. I like I hated vacations. I might have been like one of the few that like did not like to be on break. I loved reading. I loved being in, in the classroom and all that stuff. Um, but I remember uh, at one point, I think people, different teachers throughout the years, like I remember in the third grade, my my teacher at the time um, recognized that I was, I was reading at a much higher advanced level than most of the other students and created like a niche group within the class of other students that similarly were kind of advanced to like cater to us. Um, and uh, eventually in the fourth grade, I think, or in the fifth grade, I was tested for being gifted and, and um, you know, whatever that means. I just remember the test being like highly subjective. Like here's, mm -hmm. here's a can of beans, predict how many beans are inside the can, you know, something like that, where I'm like, I'm not sure how you're I, you know, I don't know enough about how you measure being gifted or not, but whatever it was, um, I made it into the gifted class. Um, and I saw very quickly, like one, a very huge demographic shift from what my experience was in every other level at that elementary school. Uh, and it was a school that was like 90% Latinx, predominantly Mexican and Central American. Um, but when I got into the gifted class in the sixth grade, it was predominantly uh, Korean, uh, Korean and Vietnamese um, with like five or six of us that were Latinx. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I, and I don't know what that necessarily says, um, but I do, I do feel like that year that I was in that class, I was um, intellectually titillated in a way that I had not been in, in previous years. Yeah. You know, we were reading Malcolm X, uh, the autobiography what? of Malcolm X. Yeah, in yeah. sixth grade? Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, we there's things about it that in retrospect, and, and I've talked to people who went through that individual, that teacher's classroom, um, who either really elevated after that class or really struggled after that class. And I think mm. the the... I think the thing that really um, influenced both of those things is that like you were just, you were just exposed to things that you had not been exposed to before. You were really pushed in your limits of what you could accomplish academically. And um, it was a very, uh, yeah, it was a very highly intellectual environment. Also came with, I think, some, some things that were probably not appropriate for the year that we, like, how old we were, you know, mm. we were still children, but we were being treated as adults. And that I think is always a very dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm. But, but yeah, but, you know, but still very highly intellectual environment. Um, and, and, and it, it, yeah, just, I remember um, the drop off I felt from graduating in that class in the sixth grade, because my elementary school at that time still had sixth grade, to attending the next middle school that I should go to based on the neighborhood that I lived in, um, and such a huge drop off in in teaching. Mm. Uh, 
which I think for many people that went through that class, it led to laziness. It led to like, you know, I'm not being challenged and just kind of dropping off. Um, mm. Now, I got lucky that that class that I was in, that teacher would advocate with like administrators at other schools. And our high school was one of those schools. Um, there were like a handful of schools that this teacher would try to get students into because I think he knew there is a drop off in teaching. Yeah. There is not consistency here. The things that I'm teaching them, they're not going to, it's not going to carry over if you just keep going down the path that LAUSD says you should go, you should go through. Um, and so I remember uh, for our high school, which didn't start until the, you know, like the fall, like late summer, fall, um, you know, I was on a waiting list along with a bunch of other people who were in my, in my cohort that had graduated with me. Um, and it was not a guaranteed shot that I would get into that high school, mm. um, to that school. And so I had to go to the middle school for three months and that school was like happy to have us. Cause they're like, Oh, these gifted kids are coming in and they're going to like raise our test scores and like all these wonderful things are going to happen. And they, they accommodated our schedules wow. to provide like teaching just for us. Like they literally pulled wow you know, God bless his soul, a teacher, a math teacher who like the one free period he had, he now had to teach us like more advanced math than was available at the school. Um, and uh, yeah, they did everything to keep us. But then, you know, within a couple months, we found out that we, a lot of us got in to, to that other school and, you know, we transferred over. But, um, but it was, it was kind of a crapshoot. And had we not had that connection with that teacher, had that teacher not advocated for us, um, I probably would have gone down the trajectory that my brother went through, which he, he went to the middle school that he was supposed to go to. He went to the high school that he was supposed to go to. And, and he really struggled academically for many years. And in retrospect, I'm like, it, it shouldn't be left up to chance that right. someone who has all the like, if given the opportunities can really excel. And I think that's true of anyone, regardless of like whether academics and, and specific subject matters come naturally to you or not, like, um, you know, you should be given every opportunity to do so. So, um, so I guess that's what I would say is, is in terms of change is like, how do we really allow people to be their full selves in this, in the system that they're in? Um, that gives them every opportunity to excel, you know, on an equal level playing field with everybody else. And, you know, cause I think it, it saddens me to like, for you to think that like you were not enough compared to some of these other kids that, you know, were all signed. I mean, I knew kids in our, in our school who were like brilliant and geniuses, but in the ways that they were like academically gifted, um, people were creatively gifted in other ways. And I think there is, both are equally important, you know? Um, and some of that is like, we don't, we don't have a schooling system that really knows how to recognize, uh, how to recognize like multiple types of talents, multiple types of gifts and really celebrate all of it. Thank you for tuning into our conversation. While listening to Steven's experiences of looking for a version of a national narrative that reflected his own lived experiences the way he saw himself and his community. I saw the image of a tree growing towards the light. It made me think 
that those who are adequately represented in mainstream stories don't have to go looking for a spot where the light will touch them. The sun isn't too far away. But for those of us who don't see ourselves in the mainstream at all, have to fight to find a spot where we can receive the warmth of the sun. In the second grade, after my teachers told my mom that I needed help with math, she enrolled me into an after-school program in the heart of LA's Koreatown. Unsurprisingly, the majority of the students there were Korean-American, and we all shared another common trait. None of us wanted to be there, including the teachers who were just as exhausted and burnt out from their day jobs as we had been from our day classes. However, over the next months and years I attended this program, something interesting happened. Being in an environment where familial circumstances, cultural traditions, and social behaviors were similar to mine taught me how significant of an impact representation and community can have on our social health and growth. It is my hope that every student, however young or old, can find communities where they are adequately represented in rooms, at tables, on screens, and everywhere else that light touches. Thank you so much for listening. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please connect with us on social media at the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own education journey with us on this podcast, please send me a DM on Instagram. 